Through the wonders of Facebook, I have an announcement for our friend, our teacher. Tomorrow's TC's birthday. Happy birthday to you, TC. <laughs> so we, we lit the candle, and we'll uh, either let it burn or he can blow it out before the icing catches on fire. Let me go ahead and open in prayer. Father God, again, through your wondrous revelation, you speak to us, you speak your words as we meditate upon them, and you reveal yourself to us. And this week again, I was impressed as I sat all day Saturday at a high school wrestling tournament. And I saw the suffering in the faces of so many young men because in each bracket only one's a winner and five are losers. Some are young and freshmen and sophomores and some are seniors and I've seen them grow through a process from year to year as I attend that event. And I could only think of Job and wonder what suffering that I saw on the mat and what suffering Job must have known because each one of these boys qualified to be a state winner in a tournament and how, how Job must have felt that he was so much a winner in his life and yet we all have to learn the suffering. Help us, Father, to accept our suffering in obedience, obedience to your word that we not leave this world with regret. Help us accept suffering as a means of growth and not be disappointed by not getting the justice and blessing that we so often wish from our suffering as humans. Help us also, Father, to understand that it is not us and our explanation, but your revelation to us in all of these things, that we might grow into obedience so that we don't feel the regret of our shortcomings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In uh, 2006, um, my father, uh, who had served uh, 30 years active duty in the U.S. Army, then 20 more years civil service for the Army, so he did 50 years. Uh, and uh, growing up, he was this, you know, as a, as, a, as a boy, you look up to your father anyway, but he was this officer, you know, this dress blues and you know just just he was a tough guy but he was always very gentle with us at, her, at our home I've only seen him being tough on base when he's walking around and other soldiers are a little afraid of him uh, but uh, at home <coughs> he was always very gracious and gentle in fact because <coughs> because um, of his intimidating stature and, and personality and all of that he made sure that he never raised his voice at our home. So growing up, I had only heard his vo commanding voice on base, on post, but at home, I had actually never heard his voice above just a normal voice level. In fact, when he and, and my mother would argue, his voice kept getting lower and lower, and her voice would go up higher until she felt foolish, because he's like down here. And she would eventually go down to his level, and then he would take her shoe shopping. <laughs> Brilliant man, right? Obviously, brilliant man. Uh, he was a historian. <coughs> uh, he got his, uh, he, he enlisted in the army when he was just 17. Uh, he wanted to leave his small town. He enlisted, got his BA during his uh, military service uh, and his master's after that. <coughs> and um, in 2006, he uh, finally succumbed to uh, several elements, in fact. Um, he was, he was 
suffering with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's toward the end, and, be and before that he had coronary um, kidney disease. So he was, he was struggling. And uh, he kept forgetting that he couldn't walk. He had, due to his military service, he had some surgeries done um, on his leg. One leg was mostly metal, just bolts, and he used to talk about nuts and bolts inside. He couldn't walk through like an air airport security check. Um, <coughs> and he, he, keep, he kept forgetting that he couldn't walk without a cane because he was suffering from Alzheimer's. And one day he got up uh, and tried to walk to the bathroom without a cane or without help, and he fell, and from that he declined. And at that point, he was in and out of the hospital, and fortunately, um, I was at that stage of my doctoral studies that I could take some time off, and um, at the time, I had uh, saved up some money from my IT work, um, and so I notified my boss, and uh, she was very gracious, and she said, take all the time you need. So I took a leave of absence from my job. I ended up actually not going back. Um, so, so I took some time off from work and school, and I, I took care of my dad. And um, he was in and out of the hospital, and toward the end, it was mostly in. And the people of the church were wonderful. Our friends and family were amazing. Um, but <coughs> there were days that, that this man that I had looked up to so much and that I, whom I loved more than any, anyone, and uh, he was the rock in my family. And he was deteriorating. And to witness that was tough. For my sister, she couldn't even sit in the uh, hospital room often. Uh, just watching him was hard for her. So being the boy, being the son, I had to be tough and strong for the rest of my family. My mom would just go catatonic. <laughs> she would just sit there. and uh, When she's stressed and under, under pressure, she just kind of goes blank. And so when doctors would t try to talk to her, she wouldn't respond. And so, um, and also I had my father's uh, medical pot of attorney, so they were talking to me anyway. And... Um, <coughs> Toward the end there, I was at the hospital most days, um, and people, Christians, church people came and visited, and they were really nice, um, but there were a few phrases and words that I, I, still, I still remember as uh, almost infuriating, I suppose, if not at least um, really annoying to hear. So... For example, one phrase I still distinctly remember is, this is all for the best. And I couldn't help but wonder what that person meant. Uh, how's, how can this be for the best? Or sometimes I got Bible quoted at me as a form of encouragement. So for example, uh, uh, the Bible verse that uh, I, got, I still remember being quoted to me, <laughs> was <coughs> that God works all things for the good of those uh, who love him and who have been called according to. So th that kind of Bible encouragement, I found it annoying. <coughs> they all knew that I was studying Bible at, at a doctoral level at the time. So maybe that's why they <laughs> encouraged me with Bible. Or, or things like, well, when you get to heaven, everything will be okay. Things like that. They were all meant to be encouraging. But I found none of that encouraging. They were all true. Uh, they weren't saying anything false. But it rang at least hollow, if not infuriating. Uh, but they didn't mean it that way. They were trying to be encouraging. One day, toward the end, it was the summer, he passed away on July fourth, actually fifth, five minutes after midnight. Uh, we, in our family, there's a, a running joke now. He was too much of a patriot to die on the 4th of July. Uh, so he waited five more minutes. <coughs> uh, so toward the, toward the end of the summer, uh, I was in, uh, one, one, one day, um, even, it, even for me it was too hard. Uh, his labor breathing and everything was too hard for me to sit. So I stepped outside. And the waiting area was too far. They didn't want to go, go to the cafeteria. Terrible food anyway. Bad coffee. So I just sat down on the floor outside. Just outside so I could walk back in. 
So I just sat on the floor, leaned my back. And uh, by then, all the nurses knew me. I knew the, I knew the staff fairly well. Uh, so they knew to leave me alone. And <coughs> so I'm sitting outside my dad's hospital room. And my friend Milton, my, one of my close friends, uh, he came to see me. And he just sat next to me on the floor. Just sat down and kind of nud- nudged me you know, with his elbow a few times and just sat there. And I don't know how long we sat. And I think his presence made me feel more vulnerable and comfortable. Uh, he and I have been through a lot together anyway. And, and so I, I, I started weeping. And he wept with me. Uh, he was also kind of a tough guy, too. He was an athlete. He was an all-American uh, track star. Uh, and he sat with me, and when I cried, he cried. And when I stopped, I thought he would say something, and he didn't. And, and forgive me, because uh, this is... Th- but he sighed, this long, breathy sigh, but the <laughs> this is funny or strange or vulgar, but he sighed the F word. He had this long sigh, and it was just the F word. And I thought, oh, yes. Somebody finally knows what I'm going through, and there are no other words for it almost. And he didn't even say it angry. He was just like, just a long, breathy sigh. And I thought, oh how much more comforting that is than the Bible. When when people were throwing Bible verses at me, I thought, oh, please, stop. But this man whom I loved, and he loved me, and he sighed a vulgar word, which I, he, by the way, I should have told you, uh, Milton is a very conservative person normally. Uh, He, uh, his wife's father is a, a minister, and his family doesn't drink alcohol. He doesn't ever cuss. <laughs> he doesn't think that's, that's good behavior. It's, this was in Texas. And so Southerners also have an attitude about words and polite language and all that. And so for him to say the F word at all is surprising. But for him to just say lengthy sigh, it was... It, and then much, much later, at the time, I didn't know what was going on, really. I was too grief-stricken. But long time after that, when I was studying Job, I realized what Milton demonstrated was an understanding of suffering that Job's friends actually lacked. Job's friends are really like my Christian friends from church, or my mom's friends from church, who spoke truth. It's all going to work out okay. God does work everything for the good of us. So this is going to be okay at the end. These are all true things. But they really rang hollow. But then when my friend said the F word, I felt encouraged. Uh, so I think about that often, that, that moment, when, when I, whenever I go back to and read Job's friend's words, I think about, hmm, what could they have said? Um, Jesus even talks about, you know, uh, celebrating with those who celebrate, right? And weeping with those who weep. And I wonder if there had been uh, a different approach, Joe would have been comforted. But that's not the point of the book, right? The point of the book isn't that. So we have three friends who continually uh, try to speak to Job and engage him in some way, but Job finds no comfort in it, and he'll tell them that. He'll say, he'll tell his friend Eliphaz especially, your words don't comfort me at all. <coughs> My cough's still lingering a little bit. All right, so uh, we began with an overview of Job. Uh, last time we looked at the, the framework and the wisdom psalm. We're, we're going straight into the poetry now, but for now we're going to skip Job 3. Because Job 3 really connects with Job 38. Job and God have a conflict right now. So a man of faith who's suffering will innately have a conflict with God. I think that's almost a given. Uh, Then the other conflict throughout the stories uh, and the poetry and the dialogue 
uh, is the conflict between Job and his friends, especially the head guy of the three, Eliphaz. So we're going to read a, a, a part of Eliphaz's speech. Again, there are three cycles, and, and we won't have time to get into all of them. But uh, chapter three of uh, four of Job, so we're going to skip three for today. We, we'll deal with that next time. Because today <coughs> is all about Job and his friends. And next time it'll be Job and God. Um, so chapter four. Uh, your, do you all have the handout? The handout shows you where we are in the cycle. So it's the very beginning of the cycle after Job speaks. Um, and chapter four and five it, it, uh, forms a unit. That's the structure. And you can, you can see um, in the handout the structure of that passage. It's uh, Eliphaz explo exploring uh, Job's suffering in light of divine power and sovereignty. And then he speaks about human nature and frailty and our insignificance. Then he kind of warns Job about his attitude toward God. And he finishes with a kind of an encouragement. Uh, I'm not sure how terribly encouraging it was for Job, but he tells Job, you know, you should really seek God in all this, as if Job wasn't. So that's the structure, uh, and, and we'll, we'll tackle uh, that speech in bits and pieces. So let's start with verse 1. <coughs> so, so Eliphaz the Temanite answered, and, and this is an answer to Job's uh, lament in chapter 3. So Job laments, then Eliphaz begins his speech. If anyone dares to speak with you or ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? So he, he's almost saying, can I talk to you for a bit? Are, are you ready to hear some truth? So I think he already knows that what he's about to do may not be received well. But he's going to do it anyway. Because he said, but who can refrain from speaking? You just had this long lament in chapter 3. Uh, and I have to respond to that. <laughs> Again, the point of Eliphaz's existence here is that he's going to do all the wrong things, saying the right things. Behold, look, you have taught many people. You have strengthened many weak hands. Uh, you, your words have helped tottering to, or the weak to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. So he's, he's recognizing that Job, as a man, <laughs> have consistently helped other people in times of need in both speech and action. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It reaches you, and you are dismayed. If not for fear, and here I think uh, most translations provide of God there, fear of God. Um, if not, is it not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember now, Whoever perished being innocent. Or where were the upright destroyed? Six and seven, uh, those, those two verses, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> they're fascinating because the words that you find there, and I think I put, yes, it's in, in, it is in your handout. He begins with descriptions and, and the words like fear of God or fear, integrity, and upright, those are words that the narrator and God had used to describe Job. He is blameless. That's the same word there as integrity. Upright, as in righteous, fearing God. The one that he doesn't, uh, Eliphaz doesn't use is turning away from evil. Because what he's suggesting is you haven't turned away from evil, that's why you're suffering. And he says, who suffers when he or she is innocent? We know better, don't we? Because we, we, we read the prologue, the, narrative, na the narrator uh, chiming in in the very beginning, making sure that we really get the point that Job is innocent. Uh, <coughs> and then the following, verse 7 through uh, chapter 5, 3, and in your handout I, I've given you some of those words. Um, if we could look at those few verses. So 4, 7, if you can read that again. Uh, remember now, whoever perished, perished, being innocent, and who were 
uh, or where were the upright dis- dis- destroyed? Excuse me. And then um, verse eight. According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. You reap what you sow. So since you're sowing suffering, you must have, um, you're, you're experiencing suffering, so you must have sowed evil. Uh, sk- skip down to verse 14 for me there. And then he says, dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. Uh, and then down to uh, chapter five, verse three. <coughs> I have seen the foolish making, I'm sorry, taking root, and I cursed his abode immediately. Uh, those words, so perish, trouble, terror, curse, uh, they all form um, a mirror to Job 3. Uh, I know we skipped Job 3, but Job 3 had lamented using those very words, and Eliphaz is throwing his own words back at him. Well, you said these things, and I'm going to tell you what, th- what these things really are. Like I said, Eliphaz is an example of what not to do. All, actually, all three of Job's friends. Turning someone else's words around. Uh, <laughs> not the most encouraging way of speaking, right? <coughs> but here's a strange thing. Uh, when you actually look at Eliphaz, uh, chapter 4, verse 12 has this, this uh, interesting refrain or a well-known uh, saying. Now a word came to me. A uh, word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Uh, these are, that, that word of the Lord or a word coming to someone is a well-known phrase for divine revelation. Prophets get this. And so Eliphaz is saying, you know, I, I have an insight. I have revelation in a sense. And <coughs> Eliphaz might be right. Eliphaz might be wise enough to be cited as scripture. Uh, did I give you the? Yeah, I did. First uh, Corinthians three nineteen. Could we turn to that? First Corinthians three nineteen. So Paul is talking about Christian living um, and why we live and, and, and the way we live, uh, suffering and righteousness and all that. In that, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> in that context, <coughs> all right, um, <coughs> so in that context, He cites, in verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is is foolishness before God, for it is written. When Paul says it is written, he's saying scripture. It is written. He's the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. That is a reference to Job 5.13. Paul is citing Eliphaz. He's saying, it's scripture. This is inspired, and Paul's the one who said all scripture is inspired by God, and here it is, scripture, and he, the words he cites are Eliphaz's words. And, and when I first discovered this long time ago, I, I didn't know what to do with it, because I don't like Eliphaz very much, and I thought, how can you quote him as scripture? But then again, I remember uh, there are lots of characters in the Bible who wrote things I don't like very much, uh, but scripture doesn't need not be from people that you like. In fact, once I even joked to my students, I don't like Moses very much, and they thought it was blasphemous for me to say things like that. (coughs) So what do we do with that? How do we take this 
the New Testament, Paul, no, I mean, no less, Paul is citing Eliphaz's words as scripture when Eliphaz's words seem so wrong in so many ways. Uh, so I, I suppose there are several ways to go about this, but like I said before, <coughs> the easiest way to settle this, I think, is this. Eliphaz really doesn't say too many things that are wrong. Uh, straight, uh, sometimes I get confused sometimes. English has right and wrong in terms of, you know, that's, a, that's the wrong answer. That's the right answer, right and wrong. But it also has right and wrong in, in terms of good and bad. You just did something wrong, right? It, so it, it has implications of morality or in ways of acting. So he acted right and he acted wrong. Like wrong how? So we have that, that distinction of right and wrong. And I, I, and I have to say, so Eliphaz says the right things, but wrongly. <laughs> Does that make sense? Thank you. Sorry? Uh, it was a he, but no, he avoided it. <coughs> uh, <laughs> where were we? Thank you. <coughs> Thank you for that. So, Eliphaz's words uh, may be theologically sound, is what I'm saying. Even, even right enough for Paul to cite a scripture. But that goes against God's estimation toward the end of the book when God tells Eliphaz, hey, you spoke wrong. My servant Job has spoke right. Go ask Job, my servant, to offer a sacrifice on your behalf, and then I'll forgive you. So it goes against that. <coughs> and so I remember those good, well-intended, and they came too, right? The church friends, um, my mom's friends, and my friends, my sister's friends, they came. They were well-intentioned. And they said true things, right things, but right in the sense of correct, but not right in the sense of good. Uh, <coughs> so you could, you could cite Eliphaz uh, as scripture. Now, that's the rest of this, uh, I, I'd like to explore, since he does say some good things, wh what does he actually say? Uh, chapter five, starting in chapter five, <coughs> he says, <coughs> let's, re let's read some of that. So now, colonize there anyone who will answer you, uh, to which of the holy ones will you turn? For angels say the foolish man, the jealousy uh, kills the simple. Uh, skip down for me to, to verse 7. Because uh, he'll keep talking about these, that same idea. And then verse 7. For man is born to trouble as sparks fly upwards. If you've ever seen any fire, of course sparks fly upwards. That's a certain, certain thing. Sparks don't fly downwards. So as certain as that, that sparks fly upwards... As certain as that, hum humanity, Adam here, man, mankind is born for trouble or suffering. So he says something that, that, uh, that reminds me of the four noble truths of Buddhism. <coughs> the first of the four noble truths is uh, that life is suffering. And Lots of major religions share true ideas, don't they? And um, here's a truth. Everyone knows that part of life is suffering. And then he changes his tone a little bit in verse uh, 8 and following. <coughs> uh, let's look at verse 13 especially. That's the, that's the verse that Paul cites. Paul cited this as scripture. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of, of the wily are brought to a quick end. He's saying God is fair and God is just and that should be why our hope uh, should reside in God. And so Job, seek God, is Eliphaz's encouragement. 
he does have Job, uh, Eliphaz, like Job, have a very um, uh, Calvinistic and, um, for lack of a better word, um, a limited perspective on God. <clears throat> so remember when Job said, you know, should I take the good from the Lord and not the bad? The God gives and God takes away. The Lord giveth and the Lord takes away. That perspective was very, very common among people of faith in the Old Testament, including Abraham. Um, so when Abraham was told, kill your own son, and by the, because at, by then he had grown in his faith, he says, well, God gave him to me, so I can kill him. <laughs> Some bizarre to us, right? Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> but that was their <coughs> worldview. God gives and God can take away. And Eliphaz has the same philosophy, same theology. Uh, in <coughs> Excuse me. Seventeen through twenty-seven, uh, chapter five, seventeen through twenty-seven. Uh, he he uh, ascribes all suffering to God, including, but he interprets it a certain way. Though it is in suffering for the sake of suffering, uh, from the very beginning of that unit, verse seventeen. Behold. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. We know this uh, saying from the New Testament as well. It's also cited. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he inflicts pain and, and, and gives relief. He wounds and his hands heal. God, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Uh, but it, according to Eliphaz, the giving of the pain has a purpose and it's reproof correcting. So um, Eliphaz sees what Job is going through as kind of the spanking, some sort of punishment from God to correct an evil, correct a wrong that Job must be going through. And that's why he keeps saying, you should, you should repent, whatever this is. Since God is uh, fair and just, which is what Eliphaz believes, and Job believes that too, and we all believe God is just, but since God is just, uh, and suffering isn't just say for the sake of suffering, but since it's used as an instrument to reproof and, and rebuke, then we should listen to that, is, it's his point. But what's the problem with that? <laughs> well, besides the fact that we know from the rest of the story that's not true, that's not what's happening for Job. I mean, if you're reproof, all right, um, when I was growing up, I got spanked by my mom. <laughs> I guess my dad would leave the room <laughs> literally because he couldn't, uh, he didn't want us spanked. They had a disagreement. <coughs> um, and so my mom would spank us when I was very, very little. I knew why I was getting spanked every time. Do we ever spank kids without letting them know why? We just randomly spank them. I should have talked to my son and see how he would respond to that. It's like, what if I just randomly spank you and didn't tell you why? <clears throat> it wouldn't work as rebuke or reproof of any kind. It would just be abuse. Uh, and, but if you tie it with a rationale and an explanation, then, yeah, it could be, it could be used as, as, as a correction, right? It's corrective. Job doesn't know anything. So even if this were true, God is terrible at this. <laughs> but it's just logically impossible. Either God is incompetent as a father, which I don't want to say, <laughs> right? God is so bad at punishing Job that he forgets to tell Job why he's getting punished. But we also know, like I said, that, that the rest of the story tells us this is patently false. Just absolutely not true. Uh, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> So the rest of his speech is covered with this kind of theology. So in chapter 4, verse 7, we read this. Whoever perishes, does an innocent person ever perish? Verse 9 of that saying, by the breath of God they perish. Verse 11, the strong lion perishes for lack of prey. Verse 20 in chapter 4, 
between morning and evening, they're destroyed and they perish forever. Uh, the word uh, there is avad in Hebrew means to perish. And he knows that that's what's happening to Job. Job is perishing away. And he repeats the word hand very often. Uh, it doesn't always get translated the same way in hand. Uh, chapter four, verse three, if you look at there. See, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands of others. And then chapter five is covered with that word hand. Uh, verse 12, 15, and 18, and so forth. Verse 20. <coughs> the word hand, um, in, in, in you know how body parts have metaphorical kind of significance in any culture? So for example, in our culture, the word heart has a sense of passion, emotion. Uh, so uh, we say things like, I love you with all of my heart, or my heart is broken. Uh, we were talking about deep emotional things. Uh, so the heart stands for that <laughs> metaphor. Oh, by the way, in the Bible, heart does not mean that. In the ancient world, Heart was w how you memorize things. So I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, is the psalmist's statement. He's saying, I've memorized your law, so I don't sin. Uh, often the translations in English will say, and then Abraham said to himself, X, Y, and Z. Uh, it literally says, and then he spoke to his heart and said. Uh, it's the seat of will and intellect, your volition, that's how you make decisions, your heart. Livers were, and kidneys, your kidneys and livers in the ancient world were the, uh, the seat of emotion. <coughs> so their Valentine's Day cards would look very different. <coughs> so <coughs> although the heart shape doesn't look like a heart to me at all, so when you look at the heart, like in any medical book or look it up, the shape of it doesn't look anything like a Valentine's heart. Uh, anyway, <coughs> um <coughs> so, the, but the hand uh, usually it, it indicates some level of control. So whether it be the hand of the Lord, protecting, guiding, uh, uh, giving, so it, it, it's the person doing it. it so it po points back to that person's power. In fact, verse... Um, Verse 20 of chapter 5, the NRSV renders the word hand power, the power of the sword in the in NRSV, but literally the hand of the sword. So control and power is the metaphor for the hand, not necessarily like our metaphor for the hand. In, 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 in the Western metaphorical framework, hand is what does the work, right? <coughs> so don't think hand and work. Um, Yes, sir. But we, always, we often give, you know, we give people a person a hand up, a helping mm -hmm. hand. I mean. um, let's see, what is the helping hand in English in metaphor? An extension, an offer, uh, to offer your hand. I'm not sure that, m that, that metaphor would work for control and power. Right. <coughs> uh, oh, by the way, when, when, the, when the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your, and your might, in Deuteronomy, the reason most of the gospel, all four of the gospel writers will include the word mind in, in Greek is because they're writing to Greek audiences in Greek language, and they don't want to use the word cardia, the heart, because cardia in Western thinking, in Greek, was like ours, the seat of passion and emotion which the soul would have represented, the heart, soul, and might. The soul would have represented that inner life. So the heart was your intellect, your will. So that's why the Greek all add mind there. When Deuteronomy 6 doesn't include the word mind, it has the word heart. So they, they don't want to misrepresent the text. <coughs> so they uh, add mind to it. And so um, what we're doing right now, engaging our minds, studying scripture and thinking about God is that um, loving God with our heart part of the great commandment, um, the great Shema, which the Lord, our Lord cites. So when I, uh, when I see students uh, studying 
And they, t they tend to think of their act of studying as non-spiritual and only going to church and worshiping God and, and singing songs is spiritual or praying is spiritual. I remind them, no, 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 no. Your first and foremost is to submit your intellect to God and everything else follows, right? What are our will and our intellect? Once you submit that, the emotional life and everything else will follow. Um, so the heart idea is there. And that's just an aside, sorry, I couldn't help it. Hand of the Lord and the hand of the weak and the hand of those, it's about control and power. And both Eliphaz and, and Job will have a very strong view of God's sovereignty and a very weak view of human will. Uh, and that, that gets changed, or I shouldn't say changed, it progresses. God's sovereignty never weakens, by the way, in teachings of Jesus or teachings of Paul. But what Jesus seems to emphasize is our will as well. So he keeps talking about what you do. You, and you, and you. And so the, the sovereignty of God doesn't get de-emphasized. It's the human aspect of it that, get, that gets elevated to the point. And that's why Christian theology is always at tension, right? Who is in control? Is it God or is it us? Well, yes. Uh, so <coughs> the fight between Arminians and Calvinists and the centuries and centuries old discussion is this logical problem. Two people cannot be in control at the same time, and yet the Bible seems to suggest we are. Uh, so Job's th theology and Eliphaz's theology is correct. It's just that it's incomplete. Uh, prog pr progress of revelation, which is achieved fully in Christ. It, it, our, our understanding of God and ourselves grows over history, and it's fulfilled in Christ and uh, through Christ. So their theology is not technically wrong. It's just one-sided. Uh, shoot. <laughs> I don't know how our time goes. Just fly. We only have 15 minutes left. Uh, all right, let's, let's move on here. Uh, <coughs> then Job, um, Job's response, actually, is really fascinating. Job's response to Eliphaz. Job initially begins his speech back to Eliphaz. So Job had begun this whole cycle with his lament, which we'll look at next week. And so Job began, and then Eliphaz responds, and then he responds like this in chapter 6, verse 1. Then Job answered... So he's answering uh, Eliphaz. Oh, that my grief were actually weighed. I wish my grief could be weighed and, and laid in the balances together with all of my calamity, all the disaster that I've experienced. I wish that could be weighed too. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. You don't understand what I'm going through, Eliphaz. I wish you could see it. I wish you could weigh it somehow. And it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. The second part of verse three is really telling. Therefore, my words have been rash. Job is not saying, I'm speaking with complete rational control of my faculties. He's acknowledging to his own friend, look, man, I'm saying these things, these terrible things, and we'll see how terrible they were in chapter 3. I'm saying these awful things because I'm in agony, and I know my words are rash. So you don't have to turn my words around and teach me theology. And then he turns back to a very strong view of God's sovereignty. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. I know I'm suffering all of this because of God. You don't have to tell me. I know that God has shot an arrow with poison in it, and it's in me. So don't tell me what I don't, I mean, what I already know. And then he goes back and says, uh, does the wild donkey bray over his grass? <coughs> does the ox uh, low, or moo, I guess that's the word, over his fodder? This, this is a strange thing uh, until you, you parse it out in Hebrew. What he's saying is this. 
There's a reason that even wild animals or domesticated animals, both, whatever, however you the wild donkey, uh, they don't make noises like braying or lowing, mooing, for no reason. <coughs> so when you hear an animal make those kinds of sounds, we think, oh, there must be a reason. I have a reason, too, for making these noises. And my reason for making these noises is the heaviness, the weight of my calamity and my suffering. He compares what he's saying, his, uh, his, his rash words, he self-acknowledges. He's not speaking wisdom here, which I, I disagree with. I think Job's words are quite wise. Um, and God will say Job's words were good. But he is saying, I know I'm wrong. Because he's got a, Job and Eliphaz share the same theology. So they're saying, yeah, I agree with you. I'm wrong. But I'm making these noises like an animal. Like an animal would have a reason. Why wouldn't man have reason to make these noises? So it emphasizes the strength of his suffering. Um, (coughs) Let's skip down to chapter six, because I, I want to share some of those with you, because um, <coughs> chapter six, uh, verse eight, I'm sorry, we were in chapter six already. So six, verse eight, in eight through 11. Let's, let's read that just a little bit. <coughs> so he's explained to, to, to Eliphaz why he's doing all this, and then he goes back to a bit of a lament again. He says, oh, that my request might come to pass, and his request is to die, by the way. I wish I could die and that God would grant my longing. Oh, would that God were willing to crush me, that he would loose his hand, again, the word hand, control and power, and cut me off. So in verse 8 and 9, what he's saying is, Eliphaz, I wish God would just kill me. That's the depth of my pain, and that's why I'm speaking this way. And then verse 10, <laughs> but it is still my comfort and I rejoice in this unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One, God. What is my strength that I should wait and what is my end that I should endure? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? He's saying, I can only take so much. I'm not as strong as a rock or strong as, a, as, as bronze. So I'm breaking apart here. Uh, it does the handout have a little graph? Uh, yes, it does. So <coughs> take a look at verse eight. The, it says, oh, that my request might come to pass and that God would grant my longing. I gave you a little more literal translation of the Hebrew there. Uh, God is referred here to as Eloah. Eloah is the, uh, lit- the, the Hebrew word. More literally it says, who will give my request to come to pass? That's one word, come to pass. And my longing will Eloah give. And then uh, to the right of that, uh, the little graph shows you how the, the Hebrew is structured. Who will give bow, the word bow, to enter, to come to pass, my request. And will Eloah give or come to pass my longing? What that, what that little graph shows you is how Hebrew loves structure parallelism in poetry. Uh, I mentioned how uh, English poetry, and cl- classical poetry especially, loves meter and rhyme and sound plays. Uh, Hebrew loves word plays and meaning plays and structuring a, a, a line to match in a way that, that uh, that's how they did poetry. So if you just look at that sentence, you realize this, com- this very sophisticated, complex structure. The, the next, uh, in your handout, verse, verse 11, is easier to see the structure. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should endure? What is, what is, my, my strength, my end? My, I should, I should, wait, endure. So now it's just A, A, B, B, C, C, D, D structure that every line has a word that parallels in the next line. So it's a much simpler structure. 
Uh, all that to say, Job's uh, lament, which we'll look at next, next time, most beautiful poetry of pain. Here, uh, again, Job speaks in, in just utterly beautiful poetry. Um, he's expressing him himself in, through poetry. Verse... Um, Uh, you know, I, I wanted to go get to the, the apologia of Job. Um, I'm not sure if we'll have time for this, but let's look at just a couple of, of passages, if we could. Um, 22, I'm sorry, 23, so chapter 23, 2 to 7. Well, actually, we'll just start at verse 1. So chapter 23 of Job. Then Job replied, Again, this time is uh, Eliphaz. So Job replies to Eliphaz. Then Job replied, even today, my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. His is God. Oh, that I knew uh, where I might find him, God. He wants to find God. That I might come to his seat, his throne, his chair. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive uh, what he would say to me. Would he contend with, contend with me by the greatness of his power, his hand again? Uh, no, surely he would, he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. The picture is this. Do you remember the heavenly council and he's sitting court and, he, and the angels are coming in and out and uh, he's asking people, hey, where are you coming from? Where are you coming from? And they're making a report. He's also a king. Uh, recently, we were reminded that there's the brilliance of our founding fathers has separated uh, the three branches of government for a reason, right? Because they were tired of a tyrant. A king made the law and executed the law and judged the law, right? So king was the highest court. That's why kings held court. And so the highest court of any monarchy was the king. And so that's the ancient world as well. Kings were all powerful uh, uh, sovereigns within their own country. So th that's how they pictured God. And Job is saying, I want to go to his chair, his throne. I want access to the king. Just like the angels do, right? I want access to the king so I can make my case, my argumentation, and he would have to hear me because I'm in his court. Then he would know that I'm right. And that, by the way, that's the judge, right? But the judge also did the, uh, the, uh, the actual uh, punishing, right? So the judge pronounced what the punishment was. So that's why we talk about judgments of God. When you are judged, you experience punishment of some kind. So he's saying, I'm being punished, I'm being judged but if I can appeal my case to the, to, to the highest, it's the same person. He's saying, this person did this, but if I can just make my case, I'll be free. He would see he's wrong, <laughs> and I'm right. <coughs> That's how certain he is that he's innocent. I'm so innocent, I could appeal to the person who made that judgment in the first place, and, and I would win. And then he later on in, in the rest of this says, but I won't. God will never give me this kind of audience. And you know what? Maybe he will crush me. If I showed up and, and made my case, God will go, I heard you. You're right, stupid bug, and crush him. That's what he thinks God will do. And rightly so, he says. Once he, sa he actually says later in, in 29, he says, you know what? If I were God, and some little pipsqueak came up to me and said, you're wrong, I'd be like, no, you're wrong, and crush him. All-powerful God, right? That's how he feels. And yet he still wants to desperately make a case. Like, look, I'm innocent. What did I do to deserve this? So there's a lot of legal language, by the way, in this, in this chapter and the rest. He wants to sue God, but the Judge who will de decide the case is that same God. <laughs> it's ironic, isn't it? Uh, <clears throat> so, 
after my father passed in 2006. He, like I said, he, he passed on July 5th. Um, it was upon me to take care of all the business of it. And, and as some of you know, that's a lot of work. Uh, so I couldn't grieve. I was just business mode, take care of things. Because my sister and my mother, they were just completely unhinged, um, especially my mom. Um, so I had to dig through the file cabinets to find her marriage license to get the life insurance policy and do all the, you know, the, and he had a military burial, so I had to go through the whole, and he had a 21-gun salute and all of the stuff that you have to, you have to do. So I was busy doing things for a couple of weeks, just, just one thing after another. And I had to hold it together. And I had to arrange the funeral and all of that. And after, afterwards, I realized I didn't get a chance to even cry. I didn't have a chance to, to grieve. And um, I started to. I had a garden out back in my house, so I was gardening just pulling weeds out. And I, and I just started, I broke down. And then the next couple of weeks, uh, I, I, I was kind of lost. Um, I didn't know what to do. There's this kind of vacancy in my brain. Couldn't take care of anything. I became kind of useless too. And then uh, my father's birthday is July 15th, and that went and came, it came and went. And just one thing after another, just one difficult moment after another. Then um, I did something kind of stupid. So a little quick story. When, I, when, he, uh, when he, we, we moved to, from upstate New York to, to San Antonio, Texas when I was in high school. I started high school in San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> and my father, <coughs> who had been raised uh, in Mississippi, he, call, he used to call himself a good old boy, so uh, there was a long story there, too. But uh, when I was old enough to buy a car, he said, I'll help you buy a car. Let me, let me help you with that. I said, okay, great. So I was 16, and I says, how about a pickup truck? I said, no way. You don't understand. Because uh, that was his first car. It was his dad's pickup truck. I said, why don't you get a pickup truck? I'm like, no. In Texas, you know how high schools have cliques and groups? <coughs> And Texas had all the same kinds of cliques and groups, like the nerds and the jocks, and you had these, like, you know, the popular kids and the rejects and the, they call goths now, but the dark kids, <laughs> kids who just are very depressed and wear black. Uh, so all these different groups. <coughs> but in Texas, there was another group called kickers. They're actually called blank kickers because the blank is the S word, uh, but in school, you don't want to say that because you get in trouble with the teachers, so we just call them kickers. And what they were, were, were some of them were actual cowboys. Uh, they worked at a ranch, and they wore cowboy boots, and they kicked around uh, horse poop or cow poop all day. That's why they're called kickers. <laughs> and they had these huge belt buckles, wore those Stetsons and cowboy shirts and all that, jeans, and all the whole picture. Picture a cowboy, and this is what they looked like. So in San Antonio, Texas, High school, where there were kickers. And um, they all drove pickup trucks <laughs> as a rule. And I told my dad, there's no way I can buy a pickup truck. <laughs> that's just not me. And it's just, you know. So that was, that's when I was 16. From that point on, every time I bought a new car or was, were, was in the market for a new car, my dad would say, how about a pickup truck? <laughs> it was an ongoing joke. Uh, I was like, you sure you don't want to buy a pickup truck, son? It's really useful. You can carry, you know, cow manure around. Like, when am I ever going to do that? So <laughs> it was a running joke for a long, long time. And then after he passed, I thought, I'm going to go buy me a pickup truck. <laughs> so I thought, I did. I, I just went and bought a pickup truck. I still have it. Uh, so it's 11 years old. And every day still, whenever I, whenever I get in that truck, the first thought is my dad would laugh. <laughs> he would get a kick out of this, <laughs> and we would have a great time. Every time he got in the truck, he would have he been laughing. And <coughs> I thought I did a stupid thing. It was a way for me to grieve. I knew it was kind of a dumb thing to do. Uh <coughs> but another friend, not Milton, but another friend <coughs> said, 
that's a very materialistic way of grieving. I don't think it's very healthy. <laughs> I thought, okay. It's not, first of all, it's not your money. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't buy a Maserati. I bought a pickup truck. I don't know how materialistic that is. Uh, it doesn't even have cruise control. I just bought the basic. Just give me the basic, I told him, because that's what my dad would have had. Nothing fancy, right? It has nothing fancy. It's just the most basic pickup truck you could find. So that's what I bought. And he was like, well, he was kind of judgmental. For years and years and years, even though I, I still get in my truck and I think about my dad every day when I'm in my truck, I still always felt bad. Like, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. Maybe it was a bad way of grieving. And then I became friends with a clinical psychologist uh, at Malone a few years ago, four years ago now. <clears throat> I told him the story about my pickup truck because he got in the truck with me because we're going to lunch. He goes, I didn't picture you as a truck guy. <laughs> it's like, I'm not. <laughs> Can you imagine me in a pickup truck? Like, no. Uh, he goes, I didn't picture you in a pickup truck. So I told him this whole story. And the psychologist says, wow, what a wonderful way to grieve. And I'm like, what? It wasn't silly? He goes, no, a silly way to grieve is to push everything down. Try to ignore things and try to forget things. But you're trying to remember it every day. I was like, wow. I didn't even know I was that super healthy. <laughs> Psychologically so healthy. I didn't know. But I still remember my friend telling me what you did was wrong. There are two times, uh, so Eliphaz sometimes speaks truth and gets, and, and gets cited as scripture, but sometimes he's actually wrong. So wrong that Job thinks he has a case against God. And he does. He actually does. When he makes a case, God does show up, and what happens? Everything gets reversed and then some. He makes restitution. God not only returns everything Job had, but then pays more. Punitive damages. He lost. It's like, okay, you win. So sometimes the bad discomforting can be true words, and sometimes it can just be wrong. And I didn't know I was, I was right. I, for, for years and years, for almost a decade, I thought I was wrong until I met my friend Dave Ventwistle, the psychologist, uh, psychology professor at Malone. He's like, no, that's great. It's really healthy. Now I can't sell that truck. It's 11 years old. Like, what am I going to do with it? My son doesn't want it, so I'm just going to keep driving it until it just falls apart. And then that will make me sad. But anyway, thank you so much for your time today. <laughs>